Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 151 of the Mandolins and Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe, also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc, which just this last weekend, they released two new items. Um, the first one is Dogworks Volume 2, 1976 to 1981. Just incredible stuff, man. And then they also have another Acoustic Encounters podcast uh, with David Grisman and Danny Barnes. Both of those are available when you go to AcousticDisc.com. Click on What's New. You can also sign up for a newsletter so you can get a heads up as well. So just wanted to give you a heads up on those two things. The Dog Works Volume 2 is just incredible stuff, man. A bunch of uh, unreleased things too. So been enjoying that this week. IBMA is right around the corner. I'll be there again this year with Keith Billick from the Picky Fingers Podcast. We have a booth in the Showcase Hall and we'll be hanging around all week long. I ordered some brand new merch, brand new t-shirt designs, brand new hat designs, kind of a takeoff on the Supreme logo, but instead it just says mandolin, and the shirts in the uh, back between the shoulder blades have the mandolins and beer. I've updated the logo as well, uh, and I'll be getting new stickers eventually too, and I'm also getting koozies, so I have enough to get for IBMA, I believe, and uh, if you guys want them, I will be selling them on the website once I get back from IBMA, uh, maybe I can find a way also to pre-order it. I'm not sure, but the, the shirts are killer. Um, the, the fabric is really, really soft. I went all out. I, I upgraded the t-shirt quality, so I'm really excited to get those in. So um, yeah, maybe I can figure out a way to, to um, work out a pre-order thing on the website or something like that so you can get them. The hats, too, are actually really nice quality, too. The normal hats that I order, Richardson's, um, which are nice. Uh, but you can't get them because of supply demand. So I actually went with a nicer hat as well. So yeah, anyway, enough about the merch. Also, today is September 16th, which means Thomas Castle's brand new album is available to buy wherever you get your music from. So go out and check that out. It's really, really good. Last week, the uh, the song Digs the Bounty Hunter was at the end of the episode, and I got some good feedback on that too. So you can go out and purchase that album. Oh, hey, and check this out, everyone. Uh, Roger Simonoff sent me a message. And for the rest of this year, if you use the code MANDOBEER, all caps, all one word, you're going to get a 10% discount on strings and books. And he's also including the six-pack of the mandolin strings. Uh, and the best way and only way to do that is to go to straight upstrings.com and do the online store again you can go there and you can sign up for the newsletter you can find out what makes the uh, strings so incredible um, but you got to go to straightupstrings.com enter the code mandobeer all one word all caps you're going to get a 10 percent discount on books and strings including the six packs and that is good until the end of this year 2022 thanks so much to roger Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in Roots music. Peghead Nation's got the greatest lineup of mandolin instructors in the biz. Joe Walsh, Sharon Gilchrist, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibish, Chad Manning, all the best from beginner to advanced. It all seems much easier when you're learning it at Peghead Nations because they got the high quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab, play along tracks and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part, of course, is you can get your first month for free when you go to pegheadnation.com and use the promo code MANDOLINBEER. 
at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com. Download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. And I believe they will be at IBMA, so stop by their booth. Tell them Daniel Patrick sent you. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins, designed and built in Austin, Texas. Tom Ellis, always putting out the great, beautiful-looking and sounding mandolins as well. And Elderly Instruments. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new, used, and vintage fretted and stringed instruments. For the experienced beginner player, their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I mention mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. Now in their 50th year, they're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly.com or give them a phone call at 517-372-7880. All right, everybody, let's get into part two with Dog. Be sure to go to AcousticDisc.com and pick up the brand new album, Dog Works Volume 2. It is fantastic, and also check out the new Acoustic Encounters podcast that he's got up there. They have something new uh, for the podcast and that they release monthly. And again, you can sign up for the newsletter at Acoustic Disc as well. So anyway, let's get into the episode part two with David Dog Grisman. Cheers, everybody. Have yourselves a fantastic weekend. You were kind of ahead of the game, though, on the having your own label and recordings where you know a lot of people um you know didn't do that though you how long how long have you been putting out your own recordings on like acoustic disc or acoustic oasis well, acoustic disc started really uh, with uh, in 1990 or the end, end of 1989 so that's like 32 or three years yeah what happened was you know for quite a few years i made records for record companies i always produced them but, you know, I was kind of under their thumb, so to speak. And I had ultimately, I made, I guess, four albums for Warner Brothers. And then they uh, dropped me. And I got a deal with MCA. And I had made a live recording with Sven Asmussen, great Danish jazz violin player. as I had done with Stefan Rapelli and Warner Brothers put that out and MCA decided they'd put the record with Sven out and but they put a clause in my contract that that if it didn't sell uh, I think 25,000 copies in nine months that they could drop me and I was ready to make my next record I had material ready and we weren't hearing from them and finally they sent me this notice that well, you only sold 19,000 copies of this record. <laughs> so we're going to exercise that option. But if you want to send us a demo tape of the material you want to record, we will consider it, you know. 
So you can imagine what finger went up. (laughs) 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 I said, I told my manager, Craig Miller, you know, just tell him it's just like the, all that other stuff I do. (laughs) (laughs) Oh man. And coincidentally, I was building a studio because I had an opportunity. I had, I had discovered this studio in Berkeley, California called 1750 Arch Studios, where I made the original DGQ record and several others and done some movie scores there. They had closed down that studio and unbeknownst to me, all the equipment was just in storage. And my friend Bob Shoemaker, the, one of the engineers there, put the idea in my mind that uh, I could obtain all this equipment and, uh, very reasonably and that I should build a studio. So I had embarked on that. And then I didn't have a record label. And two friends, Artie and Harriet Rose, had moved from New York to California looking to start a business. And it was just sort of a happenstance where... They wanted to, CDs had just started coming in and they wanted to open a mom and pop CD store and I was helping them look into that. After a very brief amount of time, we realized that there was no way to compete with Tower Records and you have to tie up a lot of money and inventory. So we said, well, maybe we should start a record company. (laughs) (laughs) Was it tough to, because um, I would imagine you, you pr- probably knew that studio that you had put together in California, like the back of your hand, maybe even better, you know, and then to move it to Washington, was that, was was there a weird period for you for there just to, you know, find the where to sit and where to set mics up again? Oh, well, that's not the hard part. It, well, it took, I didn't immediately set out to build a studio. You know, we had to sort of figure it out. We have a, what was sort of like an in-law unit in our house. It was really discombobulated and it seemed like a good space to put a studio in. And, you know, I've always, all of my studios have been like more or less garages, like small rooms. I mean, in lieu of a great concert hall, most of my recordings, you know, made in my own studio were small rooms that really I I was seeking to really eliminate the room sound and duplicate that with reverb as needed you know close miking techniques I I mean classical recordings are made in usually in concert halls and the room sound is a part of the of the sound big part of the sound and same with live recordings but you know a lot of cases that's not the right room for whatever music is being played. So I just, it's always been my concept is to eliminate the room sound. And that that's worked out pretty good because you're buying a record of, of either a singer or musicians playing instruments. You, you know, you're really not buying a record of how this room sounds, <laughs> you know? Right. <laughs> sure. <laughs> What people want is the music. I always thought that, I mean, a lot of records that I like, you know, Beatles records, etc. you really can hear the instruments. Sometimes that gets, that gets obscured by too much room sound or the wrong room sound. But, you know, I, I just take it project by project and have any real form. I, you know, I use pretty much the same microphones that I've been using for decades. Yeah, what, are, what kind? Neumann KM84 has actually had four of them stolen. What? No way. 
Uh, that's another problem with touring, you know. I mean, the last gig we played in 2019 at the Iridium in New York, all our merchandise was stolen. Get out of here. And then the first gig we played again in 2021, our merchandise and all my microphones, about $18,000 worth of microphones, six microphones were stolen. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, which was really pretty oh. screwed up. But my friend Bob Shoemaker heard about it. They put it out on social media right away. And he had three of the original microphones from Art Street Studios, including Tony Rice's favorite guitar mic, a Neumann KM86, and he offered them to me. Wow. So I bought those, and, you know, it could have been worse. Man. Yeah, that's a tough one, though. And then that's, yeah, man, yeah. that's the problem with those vintage things. It's like, it's not like you can just go and buy. You can't just go to Sweetwater. <laughs> yeah, right. I used to buy those mics for 300 bucks, and now they're like 3000 But I did end up with three of the original mics that I used when I first discovered these mics. They sound real good, and ain't going to stop me. Now, do you run them? Do you run it into a board still? I know you if you're recording digitally. Yeah, I do. Uh, I have a, a Toft board now, but I uh, do a lot in the digital domain in uh, digital performer. I work with a really good engineer named Neville Pearsall, who's like a whiz with this program. I think we still record through the analog boards. You know, sometimes I'll mix. I still have an ATR 100 Ampex half-inch two-track machine. Oh, cool. Sometimes I, if I record multi-track digital, I'll mix it to the analog and then immediately have it go back into the digital domain. Tape machine, there's a, a race head, a record head, and a playback head, you know. So I just use one reel of tape, and as it's being mixed to that reel, it's off the playback head going back into the board as it two-track digital mix, copy of analog mix. And there's actually an, a, a noticeable difference. Oh, I bet. I bet. You know, I always do, like, blindfold tests and stuff. There's a guy that modifies these Neumann microphones, and somebody wanted me to have them modified. Or, so I just said, okay, set up this and set up mine, and I'll listen to it, and don't tell me which is which. And I, I picked the not modified version you know hey you're, you you just have to use your ears you have to know your limitations you know like i think this technology is enabled most of the recording technology in the past i'd say 50 or 60 years or even 70 it's been about really a large part about enabling people that can't play or sing to make records for sure you know for sure <laughs> to me, that's that's sort of a tragedy, but you know that they really haven't b made a better microphone than they had in the 1950s. <laughs> right, right. You know they haven't really made instruments, acoustic instruments, better than well, <laughs> you know, <laughs> on some level past the 1700s, on other levels past the 1920s or 30s. So. And musicians, the jury's out on musicians. <laughs> you know, they, they're technically more adept, but one of my axioms is that having a large vocabulary does not make one a poet. Yeah, where's the song? That's always a, a good measuring stick. You know, art requires 
you have to have something to say. <laughs> uh, you know, unfortunately, a lot of very talented people, what they're saying is, look what I can do. They're kind of like acrobat, which you know, there's a certain audience for acrobat. <laughs> yes. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, the other problem is that really the world doesn't really need any new music because there's plenty of great music in the world and it's also available more so than ever i mean i bought 111 cd set of the complete works of mozart <laughs> oh my gosh you know i mean i don't have time to listen <laughs> to all the great all the great 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 music that was made even in the last century we all have things to express and i keep writing quote unquote new tunes but really you know there's more great music than any one person can listen to in their lifetime even if it was 24 7. so it's not like tomorrow you're going to be hungry again and need more food i mean if you know i got thirty thousand songs on my <laughs> right. iphone i got plenty to listen to i don't really need to buy a new recording of anything and nobody else does either but you know the whole and i won't even call it music business i'll call it the entertainment business is predicated on uh throwing away whatever yesterday's thing was and having something new today right they've tried to make music a disposable commodity which it really isn't and there's always that hunger though i mean mm -hmm. you know there's a hunger to keep searching like always find so that's one of yeah. my favorite things to do when i'm in a different city is find the used cd store because everybody got rid of their cds and there's all sorts of stuff that you can find it on youtube but it still sounds like youtubey Right. They just had a little record show in town here, and I didn't want to go because, oh, I don't need any more records, you know. But, <laughs> right. but I came home with a pile and, you know, found two Andre Segovia albums from the 50s and a, a Mike Seeger album that I never heard, all kinds of stuff. I mean, we watched Saturday Night Live, but man, the music on there, or I wouldn't <laughs> even call it music half the time, is just so up man <laughs> it's all about like special effects i'm visual i'm non-musical special effects even but people are falling for a lot of both these days and that's i guess expected but you know that's just one man's opinion one dog's opinion yeah, one dog's opinion that's a good opinion i'm not though, gonna man. rain on anybody's parade too bad or or anybody's fire hydrant <laughs> i got it we, we talked you talked a minute ago about instruments you know from the uh from the 20s and and how they really haven't improved much and it seems like maybe lore struck upon something well you know lloyd lore didn't really build those instruments those instruments were made by unknown immigrant you know instrument builders <laughs> uh, you know the f5 mandolin was kind of a an innovation that was ahead of its time it it it, it was an instrument that hadn't found the music yet that that it was perfect for and as a result at the time it was a flop kind of i liken it kind of to like the edsel <laughs> but and then there's always what would have happened if bill monroe had found a you know lion and healing mandolin <laughs> in that barber shop uh, <laughs> I tend to think that there is no 
objectively best sound. It's a combination of elements, and I think I've proved with the Tone Poems recordings that the biggest uh, component of that is the musician. 100%, man. And, you know, it really... I mean, Django Reinhardt played a Selmer McFarry guitar. It's like Django, Django made you like that tone, you know. Just like B.B. King makes you like the sound of a Gibson ES-335. And just like Tony Rice makes you like the sound of a, a D-28. But it's really, I think those musicians are really the, the main deal. And the music, you know. I used to have a little radio in Passaic, New Jersey that was really held together with rubber bands and I was able to just barely tune in WWVA from Wheeling, West Virginia on a Saturday night and I would take my Wallensack tape recorder and my Wallensack microphone and, and tape stuff off that radio with all the <laughs> but, but it was Jimmy Martin and J.D. Crow and Paul Williams. I didn't care about all those fried eggs in the background, you know. Um, so, and the same thing with, you know, 78 record scratch, even though I'm, I'm, that's another project I'm working on. I've amassed through the years a huge collection of mandolin recordings. I had them transferred years ago, going to put together a huge project of early mandolin recordings. Wow. People like uh, Bernardo DePace and Samuel Siegel and William Place around the first years of the 20th century. Man, I love your love for the is, this instrument. <laughs> it is, <laughs> you know, it's just so inspiring. The just the the deep dives you have gone on to discover some of this stuff, and and and, and in turn, turn it on to the mandolin community. You know, you it's so awesome. Well, uh, and that's what keeps me going. Is somebody, people like yourself, responded to it at least to the extent where I could make a living doing this. I'm very appreciative of that, and trying to it all done but of course there's always that little piece in the uh sardine tin of life that you can't get to right right speaking of that is there any mandolins that have gotten away i mean there've got to be some i mean you've got notoriously oh yeah and again this comes down to this is all completely subjective i mean it's the hands Uh, you're gonna make you're gonna make anything sound like you you know, I mean, obviously Crusher is legendary, but it's legendary because it's in your hands. But there's got to be some that you were like, oh. <laughs> well, um, I have a couple of axioms on that level. Yeah. If you find something you really like, put your foot down on it and get it. You know. <laughs> the other axiom is there'll always be more. <laughs> <laughs> You know, they're all, they're all have their own thing. The mandolin I play every day is this Jacamel mandolin that I, it's a very different design, but, and I became Mr. Jacamel's representative. I believe this mandolin that, you know, he sent, he sends me mandolins to sell every once in a while. And, and this one, I just had to own, you know, no like, kidding. In, in my opinion, the best one he ever made. And it just, it's actually louder than Crusher. Wow. And sweeter than, I mean, it, hey, I don't mean to be sacrilegious, but... <laughs> You know, Crusher mostly stays in his case. Although I'm planning a 
a project. I just had an idea the other day. I also own this Lloyd Lord, uh, this nickname the Parrot because it's got a painting of a parrot on the back. Yeah, it's actually on on exhibit at the Musical Instrument Museum in Phoenix. Oh, no kidding! It is actually the first known Lloyd Lord mandolin out of the first batch there is a prototype that's been found and actually restored by steve gilchrist but this is the first one out of the first batch and it is going to be a hundred years old on november 28th and crusher is going to be a hundred years old on december 20th so i'm going to try to make recordings with both those instruments on their hundredth birthdays oh wow man yeah. Oh, that's amazing. <laughs> and I thought that would be a cool thing. Yeah, that is a cool thing. For mandolin nerds, and, you know, hopefully there'll be some nice tunes on there, too. Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> is there anything that's come along the way? I mean, um, you mentioned the Jacamel mandolins, and they're definitely a unique um, shape, but you've seen a lot of things come and go. Are there any things that you found over the course of playing that really were from picks to, I mean, could be anything, I guess, in the mandolin realm, tone guards, I don't know, something that you just like. Oh, yeah, well, I, I've incorporated all those things, you know. I spent years experimenting with picks and strings and, and mandolins. And, I mean, I have a really huge collection of, of instruments, and they're all different. They're all a little different, you know. That's what I like about them course you know if you play a gig you're pretty much going to play one instrument but i still use different instruments for recordings you know on that trio record the dog trio record i use an oval hole gilchrist mandolin on some of that stuff yeah years ago andy statman you know used to play his gibson a2z she calls blackie he he always wanted more access to the higher frets you know that those a models join the neck joins the body at the 12th fret and the F5 at the 15th. So I asked Steve Gilchrist if he could make, you know, somehow fudge a couple of extra frets and make a slightly longer neck A model, which he did. And I, I ordered one for Andy and I ordered two. And, and I sent what I thought the better one was to Andy and I kept, the other one and i still have andy sold his years ago i still have mine and yeah i use that on a couple of cuts sometimes i'll just you know i'm i'm still searching for it man yeah <laughs> you know <laughs> i love it i i always wanted that was after a certain tone or sound and and jethro burns he told me he he was after playability and he says if they're hard to play just put a if they're, you know, if they don't sound good, just put a pickup on it. <laughs> well, you know, so, and I realized after a certain number of years that, yeah, playability is important. Like, I never noticed a lot of things. It took me years to notice, oh, this neck is thicker than that neck, you know. And I've owned some great instruments that just hurt me to play, you know. So, it's a combination of elements. 
And you're not going to get it all in one thing. You can't always get what you want, but if you try real hard, you'll get what you need. <laughs> Absolutely. That's the fun, <laughs> the fun part's trying. <laughs> That's the, what, what fun would it be to go into a music store and not want to pick up a mandolin off the wall because you're like, ah, I don't, I, I don't want one. I can't even imagine that. That would be the most horrible day of my life <laughs> to, be like, <laughs> to be like, nah, I don't want to pick that up. It's, and different people react differently. So I never... You know, I became a mandolin dealer, you know, because people would say, oh, that mandolin sounds good. Oh, that mandolin sounds good. They never say, you sound good. <laughs> right, right. They, <laughs> the credit goes immediately to the instrument. <laughs> yeah. So then I started saying, oh, yeah, you want to buy it? Yeah. <laughs> 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 or, of course, you know, Chet Atkins was, and Isaac Stern both said, Funny, I don't hear anything. <laughs> yeah. How's it sound now, sitting on the stand? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's all good, uh, you know, because different people have a different take on, on what they like or how it sounds. I mean, basically, George Gruen got a lot of good mandolins, but if you hear him play them, they all sound like George Gruen playing a mandolin, right, you know? Right, Not the worst, but that's part of the gift of a great musician is he can get something out of an instrument that the next guy can't get or gal. Yeah, yes. <laughs> you have the most identifiable tone out there. It's so you. And... For people out there that are looking to get a similar tone, nobody's going to sound like you. It's it's already, it's the boat is gone. <laughs> There's one Grisman. But, you know, for people out there who are like, love your tone and want to work it at home, I mean, what are some tips that you would give players for to, to work on their tone or things that you did to help develop your tone, I should say? Well, for one thing, I always had kind of a picture in my head of what I wanted to sound like, or a sonic picture. And, you know, for many years, that might have been Frank Wakefield or Bill Monroe. I think you have to pay attention to the details. And I've been doing a lot of that for the past few years, you know, being away far from the maddening crowd. And one thing I noticed is that to hear a tone, you have to, I try to play legato. In other words, I try to connect the notes like a voice, as opposed to, dee, 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 dee. you know, if you go D, 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 D. In other words, that, that note, for even to hear it, let alone hear a, a good tone, it has to last long enough for you to hear it. So, that's one thing that that's really the function of the left hand the right hand i mean just make every note sound beautiful as best you can you know that involves where to hit the string how hard to hit the string and the left hand you know and just make sure you got to be your own policeman you got to be your own worst critic and stop trying to play fast <laughs> right, just try right. to play good, you know. And a lot of people gloss over some of these details. They just don't want to pay attention to, you know, they might play a piece perfectly, except there's one bar here where they kind of miss something. And they don't pay attention. They get back onto that bar and work on all your inadequacies. For years, I would just practice the stuff that I couldn't play 
Like one of my favorites was a Clifford Brown tune called Joy Spring. I would just practice that. And I, I can't, you know, I wouldn't play it. I mean, I can't play it as, you know, anywhere. I can't make it sound like Clifford Brown or any good horn player, but it's something to work on. You gotta, you have to practice the stuff that's the hardest. And that can be just a, one bar of music within a a whole piece or an exercise, you know, whatever it is. But, you know, there are a lot of things to pay attention to in music. It's so vast. And don't be uh, impatient to get there. Just learn to play right. Let's learn to play good. And the speed will come, you know. Don't, you don't want to get ahead of yourself. It's actually harder to play slow and to keep time and all of that, you know. For sure. Put a metronome on super slow. <laughs> yeah, the, the faster you play, the easier it is to get away with stuff. Because uh, it goes by so fast, you don't notice. I just keep trying to work on my defects, mm. you know. Uh, unfortunately, it's it's a sad, and, and as a record producer, too, I, I mean, I gravitate to what's wrong with this picture. What's wrong with this recording? What's wrong with this bass part? What's wrong with you know, it's it's <laughs> it's just it's terrible, but <laughs> um, it's called facing the music. You're still searching. I mean, that's the that's the beautiful thing about music and the mandolin is if you still love it, no matter what level you're at, you still keep looking, man. Yeah, you got to be able to grow and learn something every day. If possible, you know, it pays off. It takes, you know, it takes me longer to warm up and I can't play as fast as I used to. And a lot of things, you know, uh, come with age. And I know as, as Stefan Grappelli used to say, someday my bow will drop. <laughs> oh man how great was it to play with Crapelli, by the way well it was like a, a miraculous experience you know man oh man i think i once i once likened it to standing next to zeus throwing lightning bolts oh wow man yeah, that's, I mean, that's, again, I love Django and but Grappelli stuff. Every time I hear it, I'm just like, oh, my gosh. But it was also the person, you know. He was such a, a great spirit, <laughs> funny guy. You know, it just, I, it, his tone would take your breath away. Wow. And night after night, I, I never heard him blow anything. And he'd have his shirt, he, he, he was just, I mean, he'd have his shirt in his violin case and just, I mean, he hardly would pack anything. You know? <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. That's what. <laughs> and he'd hilarious. have his little, he'd have his little nip of shivers, 
right before we go on. Oh, you know? no kidding, really? Yeah. Which, you know, you're going to retitle this podcast, right? I am. I have to for this episode. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> we don't need to discuss that, but... Well, I do have one. Know. I'll ask you in a few more minutes. I'll ask you one last question, and that's okay. normally what I would ask a, yeah. a, a beer drinker, but I have to ask yeah. a, a separate one. But, um, yeah, man, I guess, is there anything else that you would, you know, for those aspiring mandolin players out there and... What's something that you would recommend to somebody out there who's aspiring to play or just get better that, you know, piece of advice that you maybe got? Well, for one thing, you can uh, do things with your hands, not with the instrument necessarily. You can practice playing a tune with your left hand and your right hand while you're doing something else. Not driving, of course, but <laughs> you don't want to drink beer while you're driving or <laughs> either. But, you know, so years ago, I it was an ad, I think, in the musician's newspaper for uh, some kind of resource in England called the Cowling Institute. And there was a bunch of finger exercises that you could do. I mean, you can, you know, like bending each finger of each hand to being perpendicular to the other fingers or parallel with the ground and bending each one of independence of motion, of which I'm very poor at. Getting back to 10 minutes, I don't know. I would, you got to enjoy it. So you work on whatever you're you love to play but slow it down and make sure every note comes out good just take it easy and and just concentrate on the try to get into the weeds a little bit <laughs> <laughs> no pun intended or pun intended you know <laughs> you know because the devil is in the details you know yes for sure i don't know but you have to keep interested being interested so whatever whatever inspires you to work on is what you should be working on. Do you have a favorite fiddle tune to play? Is do you have like one that you pick you up? You know, every now and I don't again? have any favorite anythings <laughs> because you know, I mean, if you like, you know, suppose you love spaghetti and meatballs. If you had spaghetti and meatballs three times a day, I guarantee you after a week or two, you'd hate spaghetti and meatballs. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> so. <laughs> I'm always interested in the my latest tune, you know, because I'm trying to I'm trying to learn it, I'm trying to understand it, I'm trying to play it, refine it, change it, whatever. Sure. You know, I don't I don't have favorites. Man, you're you're it's you're just like so uh like legendary status. I mean, that's that's the thing for me that is like, you know, 50 years from now. Uh, you people are going to still if they're playing mandolin 50 years from now grisman is going to be one of the names that they're going to know because just the mark that you put on music and even if they don't get it directly from you they're going to go back and get it if they if you hear some crazy 50 you know whatever mandolin music sounds like 50 years from now it's if they're a proper student they're going to go back and they're going to go like where did this guy learn this and this guy learned this and they're going to get to you and find this treasure trove of music man and i just that's just the ultimate i think and well th thanks a lot i mean i don't you know i'm i'm just having a good time and trying to stay busy
That's so awesome. And then, <laughs> and then the last question I normally ask, I normally okay. ask if people have a favorite beer, but obviously we couldn't do beer this one. Well, so I like Pacifico. Oh, do you? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, there we go. I like, uh, yeah, I like Mexican beer. I like Japanese beer, Kirin, Asahi. I like Indian beer, Kingfisher. And I mean, you know, I like light beer, but I like weed more. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, do you have a favorite strain? Yeah, I have um, Jack Herrera in in Washington State. It's it's made by Cedar Creek. Jack Herrera. Um, it's a um, sativa. I'm not a big indica fan, but everything in moderation. I sh- I certainly wouldn't want to encourage anybody to do anything either illegal or unhealthy. I will say that I think uh, cannabis is very therapeutic, you know, to each his own. Just stay safe and don't do any of this and drive. Yes, absolutely. Hey, I've written some good tunes, man, under the influence. But, you know, I, it's not for everybody, you know, different, different smokes for different folks. <laughs> Has anybody made a Grisman strain? You know, I'm waiting for that to happen. That's got to happen. Hey, that that's not my department, but, you know. <laughs> Samson knows some people, doesn't he? He's I'm just it. glad it's legal, you know. Yeah. I'm just, I never thought that would happen, at least here. You know, hey, I won't get into politics. Take your, you know, pl- shut up and play your mandolin. <laughs> that's perfect. Thanks so much, dog. All right, there you go. Be sure to go to Acoustic Discs website, sign up for the newsletter so they can let you know when anything is coming out new. Dog Works Volume 2 and Dog's podcast uh, about the incredible album Shady Grove is at Acoustic Disc now. Thanks again to uh, David and Craig for helping set this up. Cheers, everybody. Have a great weekend.